back to Climactic in 2020. I'm Mark Spencer, and I'm pleased to be introducing today's episode with a very special guest. Hi, I'm Varsha. Thank you for having me today. Absolute pleasure, Varsha. Thank you so much for joining me. Now, Varsha, you're known for a couple of things specifically, although I'm sure you've done a lot else in your, in your you know, still quite young life. You're a member of the core Sydney school strike team, I understand, and also the national team for school strike for climate. And you've been a lead organizer of the Sydney school strike since December of 2018. But most recently, you made news by making a mockery of the Prime Minister and many other members of the current government. And you rebelliously chose to score 99.15 in your ATAR exams. Now, what do you have to say for yourself? Um, well, it's it's all pretty crazy. Like, I don't think I chose to score that at any point. Like, I wasn't expecting that at all. Um... I think I was just really, really glad to have the climate movement as a part of my HSE experience because I know that like 12th grade can be really, really crazy and just overwhelming. So it was great to have something that was a bit away from it and it just felt like a massive community that I was part of the entire time, like fighting for climate justice. Um, yeah, it's, I think what it showed me though is that having a climate thing on the side really, really helped with studying and all of that like and it really helped shape what I wanted to do in the future as well because now I know that I want to go into law and like something political and without the climate movement I definitely wouldn't have that. Well I'd be absolutely scared as a current politician knowing that a young person who not only spent so much of your time organizing for I I like the way you called it that climate thing but you were facing not only uh, existential terror as a young person with without you know who's largely disenfranchised in society while also scoring higher marks than than practically anyone in government um that's amazing and i think they uh will be looking over their shoulder for you but also you not only found time to organize for school struck for climate not only in sydney but around the country but you also took some time last year to be part of the nancy hillier lecture at parliament house uh, that took place on November 12th, and that's what you're going to be hearing later in this episode, listeners. But, uh, Varsha, what was that experience like? Did that one stand out at all, or has it kind of just been part of the, the craziness that must have been this last year for you? Um, that lecture really stood out for me because it was right after my exams finished as well. So I was all done with the HSC and all that studying. And I think going to that one, I was just like in that headspace to be like, oh, okay, I have the time and the capacity to fully 
think about what I'm going to say and like how this panel is going to work. And it, the points brought up were really interesting because we had somebody from XR and then somebody from um, another person from School Strike as well. So that representation and I think just interacting mm-hmm. with somebody else from Extension Rebellion was really cool because um, I hadn't really done much of that. So it was interesting to see their ideas and how our like goals and objectives kind of collide but they also diverge in so many ways um but at the end of the day we're all fighting for climate justice and some of the ideas that came up were really interesting like how we're not just about climate action but we're about justice for all and like taking care of our marginalized voices and making sure that everyone has a right to say what they want Mm, that's a really good point this is a really nuanced and and really engaging panel that, that really delved through a lot more layers than you normally get in a conversation about not only the climate crisis, but how the climate justice movement and how the climate sort of activist community uh, works together, works in tandem, but also, you know, what, what the friction points are and how to move past them and work better together. It's a really good point, Varsha, that this was after your exam, so that we're getting like 100% Varsha and and you you were did amazingly in this panel. It was so good. Um, has has anyone asked you this actually? You know, you got you know over ninety nine percent in your exams while organizing this. You know, in in hindsight, could you have gotten like ninety seven and fixed the climate crisis? Or um, I honestly like I really didn't expect ninety nine at all. I was expecting like I really needed mid nineties for my course, and I was super desperate for that. Um. And that was kind of it. And I was like, I really hope, like, I wanted to do my best, obviously, but wild. So I can't even process my own ATAR, which is strange. Um, but if I could have got a 97 and fixed the climate crisis, would have been stoked to do that. Because, yeah, um, just the bushfires and everything lately. And even when we had the lecture um, that morning, we had a little snap action for the bushfires. And I think that was just so much more motivating to go on and speak about how important this this crisis is and how we really need to fix it. Yeah. Yeah. Very well said. And, and thank you for bringing us back to this moment, which, um, you know, as, as we know, there's a lot of our fellow country men and women, uh, suffering immensely right now. And in saying that, you know, we all have to just do what we can and from where we're at. And I think you're all going to get a lot out of this panel. And, uh, and thank you so much for joining us to introduce it, Varsha and to, yeah, just, just a, a few moments of your time is, is really appreciated. Now, just one quick light question before we get into it. If you could personally bring in anyone from entertainment, you know, any celebrity, any big name into the, the climate fold, who would you convert to talking about the important stuff, Varsha, and why? Oh, um... I feel like some an an actor or somebody from like an older generation. I think that'd be really interesting because mm. I feel like a lot of our demographic that won't listen to us or seems to not care is that older demographic. Hmm. I know maybe like Bon Jovi or somebody just turn all those people around yes. and say, "Wake up." <laughs> <laughs> That was a really insightful and smart answer, and I I wouldn't have thought about that in a million years. You're completely right. Yet. You gave your answer to boomers. Thank you, Varsha. That was very conscientious. All right, now to hear even more insight and to enjoy the Nancy Hillier Memorial Lecture at Parliament House. Here we go. Thank you, Varsha. Thank you so much. Good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Paul Brown. 
And the first thing I need to do is present an apology from Kate Fairman, member of the Legislative Council, whose office here in Parliament House is the official host of this event. I don't think it's a surprise to anyone to learn that she was called into the House where there's a, a very serious and prolonged debate about the fire emergency and about the climate emergency. And here we are holding an event on the day of a climate and fire catastrophe in one sense to demonstrate that it's quite okay to talk about those two things in the one event. So before I go any further, I'd, I'd like to acknowledge that we're holding this event on Cadigal land, the Cadigal of the Aora Nation, and to pay my respects to the elders, past, present and future, and to acknowledge with gratitude that we are able to hold this event. Nancy Hilliard was campaigning pretty much up to the moment that she passed away. I was with her in the last week before she died and she was running a little campaign inside the Prince of Wales Hospital where she'd been for several weeks to try to get better facilities in the aged care section of the hospital. Nancy did that. She looked at what was in front of her, at the challenges that needed to be met and she attempted to meet them, even in the last weeks of her life. She was an inspirational person. I worked alongside her for about 10 years when I was chair of the Community Participation Review Committee down in Botany. And uh, at that stage, we were dealing with what seemed like an intractable chemicals issue, the hexachlorobenzene issue, which is still not solved. And uh, Nancy was an inspiration behind that campaign. But interestingly, and importantly, and this is why we're here, Nancy Hillier founded in excess of 20 local organisations in an era where there wasn't even Meals on Wheels. And she took it upon herself to campaign across a wide range of social and environmental and political issues, especially in Botany Bay area. The lecture was set up to honour that memory, but the lecture was also set up to do something that Nancy was very passionate about, and that is to continue to explore activism and how and why people take on the roles of activists. Nancy was passionate about a particular question, that is, how does the baton pass from one generation to another? How do activists grow out of the grassroots movements and become motivated and inspired to take action and seek change? That's what this lecture honours. There's a few people here I'd like to acknowledge before we go any further. Clive Hillier, Nancy's son, is here. Thank you for coming, Clive, and you'll hear from him at the end of the proceedings. In a moment, I'll introduce Dorothy Rapasadi, councillor from Bayside Council, who will welcome you on behalf of Bayside Council. We have Jem Rommeld here, who gave the Nancy Hillier lecture last year. Welcome, Jem. And we have University of New South Wales students and staff. We have university people from other universities and people who are involved in the Botany Historical Trust. And we have Nancy's friends and colleagues who've come and quite a number of people who have come because they're interested in the topic. And I do need to acknowledge at the outset that this event is supported by the University of New South Wales and Bayside Council. Our program for the night goes a bit like this, that after Dorothy has spoken with you, I'll ask Tema Milstein, who's going to chair the panel, to bring the panel up onto the stage, and the panel discussion will go for approximately an hour and a quarter. That includes at least half an hour for questions from the audience, and please get those ready. You'll hear from Tema that she wants this to be a conversation, 
So prepare to ask questions. With nothing more from me, I'd like to introduce and thank Councillor Dorothy Rapasati. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. I'd just like to start by acknowledging that this event is being held on Aboriginal land and recognise the strength, resilience and capacity of Aboriginal people in this land. On behalf of Mayor, Councillor Joe Awada and Bayside Council, I would like to thank you for inviting me to be here tonight. I think everyone who lives in Bayside, and even Sydney for that matter, should know about the late Nancy Hillier, the amazing person that she was and the work that she did for the community and the environment. I think it's safe to say we would not have the Sydney that we do now if it wasn't for her tireless work and passion. Bayside Council is proud to continue honouring the former botany activist by hosting the annual Nancy Hillier Memorial Lecture organised by the University of New South Wales. Council is committed to commemorating the life, work and passion of Nancy Hillier through this annual lecture. Local governments are faced with many social, environmental and economic problems and we cannot solve them without community input. Nancy was a very special person. If she saw injustice or felt that government leaders were making a mistake, she did not hesitate to say so. And if they didn't listen, then she fought them on the streets and in the courts, and she just never gave up. Some of her most vocal campaigns were involved with the expansion of the airport and Port Botany and fighting for the environmental survival of Botany Bay. As I reflect on her achievements, her passion, her kindness and her tireless campaigns, and there were many, big and small, I have no doubt that she would have been a formidable force in the current Port Botany cruise ship terminal debate. This is, this is a debate that I believe, personally, has gone about in, in a little bit of a, a strange way, and particularly opening up such a, a prolonged community consultation period as part of the strategic planning and the detailed planning for the strategic business case, I feel, or I worry personally, is an attempt to induce an attention fatigue in the community. So I do believe that Nancy Hillier, one of the lessons that she gives us tonight is that we mustn't give up, we mustn't get complacent. And by the time that the environmental impact statement, which is where the real meat of the environmental impacts are, uh, reviewed and discussed that we're still pushing for our voices to be heard on this matter and that we don't get that attention fatigue. The title of this year's lecture, Climate Justice, New Community Activism, is very appropriate. Nancy was not afraid to stand up and share her wisdom and her knowledge, and neither should we. Her work is an inspiration for any resident wanting to get involved in community issues and the decision-making process. We can all learn a lot from Nancy's approach, and I'm very pleased that Bayside Council and the University of New South Wales is now introducing Nancy Hillier to a much wider audience. Thank you. Thank you, Dorothy. And now it's my very great pleasure to introduce to you the, the panel of speakers, starting with Tema Milstein, who's going to be the chair. Tema comes from the University of New South Wales. She convenes the Master of Environmental Management, and I'll let her tell you a little bit more about her own background. Jean Hinchliffe is one of the prime movers behind the School Strike for Climate campaign and uh, has a, a long experience with that campaign. 
even, even though you're uh, in, in year 10 of high school. Varsha Yajman has also been working in that campaign. She comes from Gosford High on the Central Coast. And Ellie Baxter is a communications specialist who has been working with Extinction Rebellion. So I'd invite you all to come to the, to the stage and set up for the panel. and braving the heat. So I'm Tema, and then we have... Hi, I'm Jean. Hi, I'm Varsha. Hello, I'm Ellie. And we're gonna try a different kind of format so that we're not talking at you so much, but instead really engaging in dialogue and then creating a, a, hopefully a space for a lot of engagement in our Q&A that follows on the panel. And the way this is gonna work is we're gonna start youngest, go to, to oldest. So we'll start with Jean. And each, each person on the panel is going to be more of a conversation starter than a presenter. So, uh, so Jean will talk for about five minutes about some key points that are, that are really uh, meaningful to her uh, in terms of activism. And then she's going to end that with a question that she poses to the panel. And then we'll all engage in dialogue about that for about 10 minutes. And then we'll move to Varsha and do the same. And then we'll move to Ellie and do the same. And after we've gone through and had that dialogue up here, we'll open it up to everyone here. And the goal with opening it up is not to put forth particular campaigns, but really to start a conversation. So if you can start to think in terms of not comments as much as questions so that we're constantly having conversation emerge in ways that we might not have expected when we came in today. So uh, we'll start with Jean. Great. Um... Hi, I'm Jean Hinchliffe and I'm 15 years old and I founded the Sydney group of School Strike for Climate and maintain as a lead national organiser and I help organise internationally. My family and myself really aren't the activist type. My parents have really instilled a sense of social justice within me, but they were never really organizers or participating that much. And sort of my first step into activism was when I was 13 and I was probably the youngest volunteer with the Vote Yes for Marriage Equality campaign. So that was involved with a lot of calling people up randomly and everyone thought I was like 20 something or whatever. <laughs> and I, I thought that was very important as a 13 year old. And yeah, after that, I did a little bit with Stop Adani and Get Up, but yeah, it's just late last year, a little over a year ago, I got a text from a friend and as a link to the School Strike for Climate website. At that point, Greta had a little bit of notoriety. The school strikes were really small and no country had ever held a big strike. And it'd been set up a few days prior from a few girls in Castlemaine. So I thought, oh yeah, I'll come along to an event in Sydney. And I saw there was only an event in Melbourne being planned. So just right away, I jumped in <laughs> and said I'd organise one in Sydney. And that first rally was... We were expecting if we did really, really well, we might get 1,000 in Sydney. And we ended up with 5,000 and 15,000 nationally. And then March 15th, this was the first time we'd ever had a globally coordinated strike, which Australia actually played a really major part in making that a global effort. And that time around in Sydney, we thought like we, we wouldn't publicise our goal because we thought we wouldn't reach it, but we thought 15,000 would be insane and we got 30,000. And then September 20 came along and we thought, totally crushing it, we get 60,000. And we ended up with 80,000 80, 80, people and 350,000 nationally. And that was... <laughs> and across um, September 20 and 27th, globally, there were about, I think, 11 million people participating in strikes across those days. And in my opinion, what's made this 
movement grows so much in such a short period of time. It's a couple major things. And the first is that we remain strictly nonpartisan. And this means that we're able to frame this issue as not something that's an inner city issue or a left wing issue or a right wing issue. It's it's this it's a human issue. And it's it's not politics at this point. It's it's a crisis. So we're campaigning for bipartisan efforts. We're not saying that any particular party would favor or any anything of that sort. We just want climate action, meaningful climate action, to stay below one and a half degrees of warming. And the thing that I think has been really big is that we're changing the way that the climate change and the climate crisis is discussed. Because for decades now, it's been an issue dominated by scientists. And you see all these reports and these studies and the statistics, and it doesn't feel like a real-world issue. It just feels like numbers on a page. And it feels like a distant thing and something you don't need to think about until the next century. It's really easy to disassociate yourself from it. But when you have young people being the main voices in this conversation, yes, we follow to the science, but what we're doing is we're changing it and saying, this is how it will impact me. I will be... I think I'll be 26 when the 12 years we had to um, avert the worst impacts of the climate crisis will be over. And at that point, I'm at the very beginning of my life still. I will be experiencing enormous droughts, bushfires bigger than what we're seeing at the moment. We'll be seeing flooding, we'll be seeing food shortages, all these major issues. And I'm lucky. I'm living in a first world country. We're in a privileged position. If you're looking at it in developing nations and low-lying Pacific regions, these people are literally losing their homes already. This is an issue happening right now, and it's only getting worse going into the future. So what we've done is we're able to frame it as this real-world human issue instead of being a graph or instead of being this is how much sea levels will rise or these are how many species will go extinct because that doesn't feel urgent and it doesn't feel pressing. We're, we're really relating to people's emotional sides and I think that's helping a lot in increasing the urgency of this. Another thing I wanted to bring up is throughout this campaign since the beginning, we always hear as organizers that we're such remarkable young people and that, oh, you're so special for doing this. But what I've noticed is that honestly, any of my friends at school could be taking action in the way that I do. And they're able to do this. This isn't an exclusive thing. Anyone is able to make these major changes. The thing is that particularly as young people, we're told time and time again that we're too young to make a difference and that we don't fully understand the issue and that we're ignorant or apathetic and that our voices don't deserve to be heard. Honestly, that follows through into adulthood. And I think most people feel that they are powerless and that... They don't have the skills needed to take action in this way and to lead these campaigns. And I just want to say 100% everyone does. And the fact that you're here today, you probably have that nagging feeling that I should do something or you want to get involved. And it is scary, but sort of reaching that point where you just go for it and you say yes to an opportunity and you do what you can and help in any way. People love that. And these are the most accepting communities and you're able to reach out for help and really anyone is able to be involved in these and this is a space for everyone and we need everyone for things to really change. So that was my little ramble. <laughs> oh, I forgot to put a question forward. <laughs> 
Yeah, I guess the question I'd put forward is, I think that, as I was saying, we're, we've changed this conversation. It's feeling much more urgent. And already we've had decades of this science coming in. This is a clear issue. And people are seeing it as an issue. But what I sort of pose is, at what point do we think it will reach a stage where voters and politicians are willing to put this issue above all others and see this as the number one because that's what we need for this to really change. Mm. <laughs> right, um, I'll start. So I think it's the economic drive that really puts politicians in their place. So I think at one point when they finally realize that coal is so, so expensive in comparison to renewables and that it's not sustainable, or not even the sustainable bit, in fact. It's more about the, the money that we're getting and how we're a coal-thriving country. I think once they realize that renewables are going to be cheaper in the long term and short term, that's the only time that we're actually going to get a change. And I think that's one of the main missions of School Strike, of all these amazing climate movements, is putting forth the idea that it's not just about being a bunch of people who are like, yay, we're hippies and we're like fighting for the world. It's not about that. It's about the idea that this does affect us financially, it does affect us socially, and it is affecting our health. The bushfires today are, are absolutely insane. And I think it just goes to show that it's really about educating people at this stage, and that's what we have to do. Yeah, look, I, I absolutely agree that it will be an economic driver, 100%. I think they already know. You'd have to be very, very ignorant of the, the world's realities to not see that renewables will be cheaper moving forward. I think the point at which we'll start to see change is when we see the mining companies and the mining lobbies extricated from funding our government, which is what they're doing at the moment through political donations. Mm. Cool. Can you, can you maybe talk a little bit about what the... Uh, so, so you're representing two movements up here that are making headlines, that are really affecting people's views, mm. that are really... I mean, I have some... Some numbers here um, from the United States and from Australia in terms of how people are being affected, for instance, by um, youth-led climate protests. So now over three-quarters of Americans indicated that the youth-led climate protests make them feel hopeful about climate action, including 28% very hopeful. And that same majority indicates youth-led protests make them feel motivated, including 27% very motivated. So that's that's quite new. And in Australia, in September, the Australia Institute found that 81% of Australians believe climate change will result in more droughts and flooding. Two out of three agreed the government could plan for an orderly phase out of coal. 64% of Australians said we should aim for a net zero emissions by 2050. So can you talk just a little bit, some people will be really familiar with your, your the demands of the two groups and the mm. goals, but maybe we could hit on those a little bit to create yeah. more basis for what we're talking about here. School strike for climate, we have three main demands, and that is no new sources of fossil fuels, including the Adani mine. The second is full renewable energy and exports by 2030. And the third is for a just transition and job creation for all fossil fuel employed workers. Mm. Extinction Rebellion's demands are fairly the same across internationally. Some areas have included a fourth demand, but generally the three demands are tell the truth, which it calls on governments at all level to declare a climate emergency. The second demand is to act now to bring emissions to net zero by 2025. And the third demand is beyond politics. And that means establishing a citizens' assembly to make the decisions on policy about how we get to net zero so that we're taking that decision-making process out of the hands of governments who are simply there for their next 
re-election and giving it back to the people. Great. Can can we add to this why it's important for governments at the federal level and at the local level to be declaring a climate emergency? What does that have to do with these overarching goals? What we've seen, for example, if we look at the example of the city of Sydney, they've recently gone completely carbon neutral in all of their operations and they've declared a climate emergency. So it's about putting that line in the sand and declaring this is what we know to be true and from here we will act as if it's true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what where, what are your next goals in terms of councils? I mean, I know that some people might know that last month at the federal level here in Australia, a crossbench motion to declare a climate emergency was blocked. I, I know that there are, I mean, it's passed in the UK, it's passed in Canada, and it seems to be having some effect in terms of how politics are starting to play out. Should we be acting locally? Should we be acting federally both at once? What's What are the best approaches? I absolutely believe that we need to be acting on at all three levels mm-hmm. concurrently. The local government association passed a climate emergency at their conference recently, which was a fantastic step. So absolutely lobby your local councils, but we also obviously need to be working at a state and federal level. And, you know, this is a global issue. So at a global level as well. Do either of you want to add anything about Well, I think it's just really interesting the way we're using language now in this movement. Mm. So we've gone from climate change. No, we've gone from like global warming to climate change to climate crisis to climate emergency. And I think it's about understanding how those words play a part in our movement and how they create that sense of urgency and that tension in the environment. Because I know that lately we've been using the the phrase climate crisis or climate emergency just so much more. And on the strike at September 20th, the energy was so different. It's, Mm. It's so different to any other action that we've ever had. And I think the reason for that is because we have that tension. We have that urgency. So I think that's also a really, really great drive to get our politicians to kind of come around to the economic bends, I guess. And yeah, I think that's just a really great way to catalyze a change. I think it's it's all about providing that sense of urgency because climate change and global warming, it's sort of like, they sound like faraway issues and they don't sound like right here, right now, we need to do something issues. And when you're saying that something is a crisis or an emergency or ecological breakdown, it's these are terms which they, they show the scale of the crisis that this is. You see things like the bushfires going on at the moment and that isn't climate change that's a climate emergency. And I I think providing that distinction has really helped in people's understanding of it and also drawing that link between major disastrous weather events like those going on right now and climate change itself. It's on the tip of people's tongues now, right? When when people are talking about the smoke, it's what comes right after that is a Mm. discussion about why. Mm. Yeah. Varsha, do you want to? Yeah. So my name is Vashi Yajman. I'm 17. I just finished year 12, so yay. (laughs) So I just want to give a bit of context, I guess, about how I joined this movement. So I started in AYCC, which is the Australian Youth Climate Coalition, at the start of last year when I was in year 11. And basically, I did a little student climate leadership program thing. And that was completely run by university students. It was run by people who were fresh out of high school, who had a really different perspective, I guess. Because like Jean was saying... This issue can just seem so far away, can seem so distant. And I think especially our education syllabus doesn't really do it much justice either. We don't really learn anything about it. That actually makes us feel empowered or motivated to make a change. So I started in AYCC and then my family is like, it's quite supportive of it because they've done like social justice things, I guess, years ago. But I think there's also the idea of our education being hindered, like the amount of time I spend on 
this movement versus the amount of time I spend at school. And I think that was a real clashing conflict in my family. And I think that's the case for a lot of people out there. It's about how am I going to find time to balance everything? What role do I have as a student? Am I just a person who studies and goes to school? Or am I actually taking part in social issues? Am I making a change? Am I looking at long-term goals that I have in life as well? And I think that was something that took me ages to figure out. I probably haven't yet. But I think I realized that these movements and these issues are just so important to me that I do want to take them into my career and that I do want to pursue them in the future. It's not just something on the side anymore. And I also found that when I joined AYCC and also School Strike for Climate later, late last year or early this year in fact this movement was dominated by women in a in a big sense mm. and i think that's really really empowering because being a female being a teenager you're kind of told like oh you know girls can't do this girls can't do that and even though we're a little bit more progressive nowadays that stigma is still definitely there and i think it's just amazing that this movement is able to kind of transcend those constraints and be like okay we're we have an objective and that objective is to have a sustainable future and that sustainable future doesn't segregate based on gender or race even being a person of color from india with an indian ethnicity I've never felt hindered in this movement or I've never felt discriminated against. And I think that's one of the most amazing things about the climate movement. But it's also made me think about what is the climate movement? Are we a bunch of lefties just, you know, out there? Or are we thinking about just a sustainable future? Are we thinking about other social issues? What, what role do we have in society? Because I think for me, I've realized that it's more than just a sustainable future. It's about bringing people together. And I think on September 20th, that really showed me that 350,000 people coming together and saying that we believe in the same thing, that we're going to forget about our gender, we're going to forget about our race, that there's this one objective that we have, that, you know, we're bigger than our politicians in a sense. And I know it can kind of seem demotivating at times when we see our politicians just kind of ignoring us and I think that's been happening for for years now because Stop Adani and Get Up have been doing so much of work and I think this is the first time that we're actually seeing some acknowledgement because I know that when I turn on the news every night climate change is always a debated issue on there and I think the reason for that is because young people are stepping up it's because we're saying that we're not just students who are gonna go to school and do the HSC and do these exams but we're going to take part in social issues that we're going to look after our future that there's more to us my kind of question is what role do you think the climate movement has in society? Is it about empowering females or is it about changing what a student is? Is it about changing our titles as human beings? What what do we have in this? Like, why are we doing this? I think that's a really great question. And it's something that we need to think of with a level of complexity. One of the strategies within Extinction Rebellion is to be very, very single-minded about addressing the climate crisis, that we are in an emergency and not to allow ourselves to get distracted by other issues, which are extraordinarily important, but in the face of extinction, that we have to be a little bit single-minded. Having said that, one of our core values is to have a regenerative culture. And that's really about a whole... Well, it's about a whole lot of things. But in this context, one of the things that it's about is creating a vision of the culture we want in the future and how the climate movement can be a part of creating what will be the new system that grows out of whatever's left of this system once we hopefully get through the crisis. So I think that's a really interesting question and it's something that I personally struggle with to find an appropriate balance between recognising 
that we are in a crisis and we need to be taking emergency measures whilst also maintaining those values and the importance of justice. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I think the climate movement over the past couple of years has really started pushing for the sense of instead of just climate action, climate justice. And that means sovereignty for First Nations people. That means workers' rights. That means LGBT rights. That means all these different issues because it's it's that sense of intersectionality. And I, I think that's what's really been shifting recently because when you look at these issues they are so interlinked and you can say if you're looking at LGBT rights LGBT people are far more likely to be homeless in their youth and when climate change happens you have these extreme weather events it is the homeless who are the most impacted and then so that's just like a quite a simple sort of example but I I think that within society it's it's sort of shaping that idea that we can't just we can't have really meaningful climate action without justice for all peoples. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's really interesting to think about justice for all people. I think that kind of sums up what a movement is because it's not just about one thing because I think it's important to have one objective and one main goal. I think that's great because it brings a lot of people together. But having that diversity and that openness and saying that we're, it's about more than just this one thing, I think it brings together so many more people and it makes it a mass mobilization that it is today. And I think that's how it's going to gain more attention and that's how it's going to get bigger and possibly catalyze a bit of change in politics as well. Again, though, it's, it's definitely difficult. Like what you're saying, you need to head first with this is an emergency. Mm. We need to value this most. and then, But also balancing that within other values. There's, there's, it is a really complex thing and finding that balance is impossible but it's sort of yeah it's it's difficult but I think I think a lot of different movements are really finding that right now mm. of course and I mean the thing is it's I, I think it's important that we don't say you know action on climate at any cost mm. yeah that's 100%. that's not acceptable it can't be at the cost of marginalized people it can't be at the cost of the global south mm. um it, it has to be climate justice absolutely i like that you brought up intersectionality right because the interlinking of all of the isms which some of my students are in this room where we talked about that this this term the interlinking of colonialism and racism and sexism and anthropocentrism right the human centeredness um, to the exclusion of the more than human world is all interlinked right the the same traits that are used to other others who, those who we see as others or those who society positions as others are used in all of those different situations. So by starting to work on this major part of the fabric, right, this part of the fabric that we're all literally breathing in and out of, I think it's going to have an evolutionary effect. I, I'd be really interested, Ellie, in you talking a little bit more about the regenerative culture aspect of Extinction Rebellion, especially because I know that Extinction Rebellion gives regular regenerative, regenerative culture workshops that are open to anyone who wants to attend, and also that there is a regenerative framework for the activism itself, a site of regenerative cycle that has a great diagram and is seasonal and cyclical and quite interesting. Can you talk about what happens at those those workshops and how the activism is also regenerative? Yeah, of course. The Regenerative Culture 101 workshop is kind of based in a, in a sort of earth-based psychological well-being methodology. I don't; those are not the proper terms. I'm I'm not in the Regenerative Culture Working Group, but I have attended one of the workshops, and it's very much about connecting with earth emotions. So, for example, we do an exercise where people in the room are guided to feel whether they feel most like earth most like air or most like water then one element is asked to walk away and turn their back on the rest of the group and then we talk about how that felt and and how you how you would feel in in our group 
Earth walked away. How did you feel when the Earth turned its back on you? And really connecting to, as you say, the more than human world and the exper that experience, I found that quite profound. The regenerative culture group, they run workshops like that. They also are our wellbeing support people at Actions. They do arrestee support after Spring Rebellion. They sat outside police stations all night with snacks and hugs and um, support for people when they were released. They're also very engaged with, you know, checking in with activists and all of us have a tendency to take on too much and get burnt out so they're fantastic at checking in with us and also putting in place measures within the all of the other working groups where at the beginning of a meeting we all check in about where we're at how we're coping emotionally how we're coping with our workloads how we can support each other and that's a really inbuilt part of the movement because we know it's never going to be just one action it's never going to be oh spring rebellion's done great we're in this for the long haul we know that we're going to have to keep fighting for a long time. So if someone in this audience who's not involved yet in either of the movements or in both of the movements wanted to be, for instance, in that group, mm -hmm. how would they How would they? Find? How would they join the regenerative yeah, I, culture group? Mm -hmm. The first step would be to come to a Welcome to the Rebellion talk. They're held every Thursday at the Gaelic Club in Surrey Hills, 6 o'clock. Just rock up. At that talk, you'll be led through some of the basics of the science and then a bit about how Extinction Rebellion operates and, and what the demands and our core principles and values are, the strategy behind the movement. And from there, you can put your name down on a list to be part of the Regenerative Culture Working Group. And hopefully, if the system works, someone will get in touch with you and invite you to a meeting. Awesome. And so that's 6 p.m. every Thursday? Yes, at the Gaelic Club in, in Surrey, Surrey Hills. Hills. Okay, great. Thank you. 6.30. Okay. If you get there at 6, someone will be there. <laughs> <laughs> Biscuits, etc. Okay, wonderful. Ellie. Yeah. My name is Ellie Baxter. I'm 37 years old, and I finished high school quite a long time ago. <laughs> but I'm enormously proud and honoured to sit beside these young women who are doing really, really incredible work. And I, I really hate to use the word inspiration because <laughs> it's like, no, we should be doing this because it's the right thing to do. But you ladies are very inspiring. <laughs> so I think the most useful thing I can do is talk more specifically about Extinction Rebellion, for those of you who don't know about the movement. It started in the UK. It, they kicked off their main public event in October of 2018. But before that, there had been about a year to 18 months of a a group of people who came together who were activists and academics who wanted to put together a strategy for a movement that would really push things forward in terms of action on climate change. And they relied on some interesting research. One of the studies they looked at was Erica Chenoweth's study out of, out of Harvard that looked at the success of social movements. She went into it believing that uprising was the most effective way of creating change and through her work was quite surprised to discover that in fact nonviolent direct action was the most successful strategy in terms of creating a social movement. What she also found was that in the situations she studied, which there was a bit of a bias towards countries that weren't liberal democracies, so we're yet to see how this will play out in a liberal democracy, but in countries that weren't liberal democracies, where 3.5% of the population were engaged in sustained civil disobedience, they always succeeded in overthrowing a government. So that's pretty inspiring. Again, it's not a perfect methodology, 
but it's interesting. And from that, they worked to develop what could be a global movement. And I think you just have to look at the name to see how incendiary they're willing to be. Will you choose extinction or will you choose rebellion? Those are very specifically chosen words. And I think that they're very important and powerful in terms of how the movement is seen and how it sees itself. From, from there, they held the first declaration of rebellion in London in October of 2018, which was a great kickoff, but relatively small. And where they really came into their own was the uprising in London in April of this year, where they essentially shut down London for two weeks. And at the end of that, at the end of that action, a thousand people had been arrested and the UK's conservative government declared a climate emergency. And that was the point at which a lot of people who were interested in taking action on climate internationally looked at this model and thought, yep, let's give that a go. That, you know, that seems to be somewhere where we can see a way forward. There's a couple of things that I think have been particularly effective. Firstly, the arrests have been a very powerful strategy. Again, it's not a straightforward strategy. There's a whole lot of issues, particularly around privilege and marginalised people choosing to be arrested as comfortable white middle-class person for a very minor charge is pretty straightforward. If you don't hold that level of privilege, it's not straightforward. And we absolutely acknowledge that. But it is a very effective way of getting attention. And that's certainly what we saw here in the Spring Rebellion in September, October rather, that, you know, we had 40-odd arrests and it was headline news for a week. It's absolutely changed the way the media is talking about climate action and really brought around this sense of urgency. The other thing that I think is different and effective is the use of theatricality and creativity within the actions. I think when people see them, obviously some people think that we're raving lunatics and that's fine, but a lot of people see beauty and they see emotion and look, it's not fun, but I think it's, it's something where you see people doing it and think that's interesting and I'd like to be involved in a way that goes beyond perhaps just participating in a march. And I think that's been, that's been really effective. And the, the movement has been extraordinarily well branded. I think the, just the impact of the hourglass symbol, the language has been very effective. What do you see as the, the differences and also the synergies between Extinction Rebellion and School Strike? Great question. <laughs> Hi, this is Holly Hammond, Director of the Commons Social Change Library, with a resource recommendation for climate activists. Extinction Rebellion and other creative rebels have brought nonviolent direct action to the forefront of the national conversation. The Commons has gathered 55 resources on nonviolent direct action, including videos, podcasts, articles, manuals, and more. You can find resources on the theory and philosophy of MVDA, practical guides to setting up action groups and blockades, training materials, many inspiring and informative case studies, and specialist resources on legal rights, safety, and resilience. Visit the nonviolent direct action topic on commonslibrary.org. Commons is your one-stop shop for resources for community action. So, School Strike for Climate, from what I've noticed, I think the focus for us is getting 
every single person out on the streets coming to a giant, giant rally and march. We, whilst we're definitely not playing by the rules in that we are striking, we're skipping school, now we have so many adults skipping work to join us, we never really go for arrests or that yeah. sort of really, really direct form of action. And I think that it's great having both movements because it means that you have that space for that really, really direct form of action that some find extreme but is really important and has a really vital place in the movement. And you also have a space for people who maybe aren't as comfortable in that but want to be part of these want to make a difference and want to be part of these mass mobilizations. So I think that's the place that School Strike plays in this, whereas Extinction Rebellion is less about getting every single person involved, but more about getting the people who really do care and who are willing to get arrested or who want to get involved in these more direct forms of action and having a place for them as well. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And I very much see part of XR's role as being about the leading edge of moving the Overton window, mm. you know, that we're willing to push out a little bit further and that makes more room for organisations like 100%. the School Strike. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. And I think it's been interesting because seeing the initial School Strike, and which was November 30, and discussing with... I, I was at Newtown Festival and that was the first sort of promotion I'd done for it and I had a stack of maybe 150 flyers and the rules there are that you can only give someone a flyer if they you have like a conversation with them and they choose to accept it. And I got through all of them in the day and I remember it was very difficult to convince kids that yes, you're allowed to skip school for this sort of thing. <laughs> you just need to bring a note in from your parents and you should be allowed or like maybe you can skip one exam. You know, this is like really important. And <laughs> that was a really extreme form of action and politicians were debating you had ScoMo's comments about more learning in schools and less activism which just a, a little tangent on that we were growing quite a bit before November 30 but after Scott Morrison made his comments about it we exploded <laughs> as a movement thank you the next Thanks. day I had CNN calling I had BBC I had SBS World News SBS Normal News all in like a two-hour period. <laughs> and over those next two days, like our Facebook response probably tripled and the amount of people actually showing up exploded. And the thing is that because Australia were the world leaders for those strikes, we were the first country to ever hold a strike and so many countries took action after we did. That means Scott Morrison played a vital role <laughs> in the growth of this movement and I love that. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, what was my original point? <laughs> yeah, but it, leaders making comments like that, like going on strike was this heavily contested issue. And that was one of the most extreme things people had done in the environment movement for such a long time. Like we weren't playing by the rules. Mm. And then Extinction Rebellion <laughs> come up and they, particularly in Europe, after they shut down London for two weeks, that yeah. was just insane. And now striking is seen as, whilst it's still seen as super important and so many people are getting involved, instead of, being something that's up for debate whether oh should people even be doing this it's like this is an accepted part of the movement we yeah. no one is playing by the rules anymore and I think Extinction Rebellion has really helped as you're saying like uh, pushing that and making that space for us yeah mm. yeah striking's gone mainstream yeah everyone's doing it 
I think for me, I found the difference between Extension Rebellion and um, School Strike to be the idea of parental consent because we kind of live off of that. I'm going to be honest, that, that's basically our main thing to get parental consent at this point because if parents aren't letting their kids go, we're not going to have anyone there. That's the basis of our movement is having people there and having that kind of collective visual of, whoa, 80,000 people, clearly a politician should do something. It's that kind of idea. And then even for me, I know my own family's been like, oh my God, like, are you sure you're in year 12? Do you really want to skip this? You have the HSE exam in two weeks. And it's been a lot about kind of convincing them and grappling with that idea. But then I think when you move into Extension Rebellion, you have that sense of autonomy, not only because of your age, but because of the experience. I feel like being in Extinction Rebellion, it's a bit of a different boat. I think you come in with a little bit more knowledge, maybe, or a little bit more like understanding of why we need to be a part of this. Whereas with School Strike, I know even when I joined, it was a bit of like a, yeah, I care about this issue, but then I'm sure I care about other issues as well. But then when with School Strike, you become so immersed in it. You meet all these people and you understand that climate change is something that you can actually do something about. And I think that's really hard for teenagers who are going through puberty and like with crazy stuff as well (laughs) to kind of realize that and I think school strike is really great at facilitating that idea and I think extension rebellion kind of grows upon that and it's kind of like okay how can I get more involved is it taking more of an aggressive stance and I think that's where extension rebellion and school strike can really work together Mm. although there's definitely been such a shift in tone I think with young yeah, people. Just, yeah, exactly. Even I know, as, as soon as that UN report, which gave us 12 years to mm. about the worst impacts of the climate crisis came out, it was everyone saw it. And yeah. it's everyone's number one issue at this point because every other human issue is something that, whilst we should be dealing with mm. it, you can wait a few years and you can still deal with it. Mm. It isn't irreversible. Yeah. Whereas the climate crisis, we're on the verge of that tipping point of runaway climate change. And at that point... Even if we stopped all emissions, well, the earth would keep heating and the seas would keep rising and we couldn't do anything at that point. Yeah. It is totally irreversible. And even right now, we've, we've reached that tipping point and we're already having irreversible impacts. So I think we're really seeing that now. Yeah, and even with the language again, like eco-anxiety, that's such a big thing now. And I think with these movements, we're trying to tranquilize that fear. And I think that's why it's so, so, so important to join these kinds of things, to understand that, yes, we have anxiety, we have eco-anxiety, we're horrified, we're terrified, but there is a way to kind of go about it. There is a way to manage this fear and understand that you are making a change, that you are making a more sustainable future for not only yourself, but for everybody else as well. The strategies behind both movements and the tactics that are you're using in in part are are helping people move from everyday people right to activists mm. at, a, at a massive scale so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how your tactics and your overarching strategy based on this being unlike anything we've ever dealt with before as a species yeah. right um, when we're all linked and networked in the ways that we are knowing that this is overarching it affects everything in many ways the movements are borrowing from some previous movements right i mean yeah. such as decentralization but there's also some things that are really new i mean having movements start started by kids right mm. um so can you talk a little bit about what you think is most effective in terms of what you're borrowing from those activists who came before you from the shoulders that you're standing on and what you're introducing mm. to this unique moment yeah i think school strike it's really interesting i well actually just a little story i went to new york for climate week in september as the un youth summit and the un general assembly was going on at that time and i was talking with a university student who i think worked for march for science 
and he was so curious about the school strike movement and he was saying it's almost hilarious we're so textbook in how our social movement has come together and in how we're operating but we don't know any of the textbooks because <laughs> he, he was asking me oh what theory of change like who like who are you following and I'm like we're not following anyone. We're, the way that we're doing this is as young people, we're having these conversations. We're saying, what will be most effective? What will be our next step? And we have such a diverse range of people and we have such a diverse range of views that when everyone has these conversations, we're able to const- like consistently find the best option. And yeah, I, I think that in saying that though, we, we are borrowing even groups like Stop Adani. In Sydney, at least, we've recently been setting up these sort of decentralized local action groups within different electorates so that we can really put pressure on different members of parliament. We're, we're sort of borrowing from that idea of mass mobilization and how we're growing through such a variety of means. But I, I think what really makes us different is that access to the internet because what ha- what's happened now is that we're able to globally coordinate these events and we're able to have a global unanimity and this is what the events are like these are our messages and we're able to have calls even though they're at 4 a.m <laughs> with kids in europe and america and asia and africa and all over the place and even internally we're able to spread things through social media and it's, it's interesting actually because not only is it being spread through our strike page which i think is we're more near twenty thousand. No, we're nearly at fifty thousand followers. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. And not only are we spreading through these pages, which have a big following, but what we've found actually makes it grow the most is when kids see that, screenshot it, and post it on their personal stories, personal social media pages, because it means that other kids will see, oh, this kid from my school is going along, or this person in my friend group's going along. I won't be alone in doing this, or oh, I can I can go with that group. It's because it's really scary when you're alone in doing this. And I I think that the internet has totally changed how we organise. We never have in-person meetings, really. We're able to have this coordination. And I think that's one of the really big things, which is differentiating us from pretty much anything that came before. Mm. So Extinction Rebellion is a decentralised self-organising system, which basically means if you want something to happen, you do it, and you find other people to help you. Um, and just to be clear, that's true for anyone in this room. So if absolutely. anyone here wants to make something happen. Yeah, as long as you're, if you go to the website and you read the 10 principles and values, and I've gone through the three demands, if you act following those principles and values and calling for those three demands, you can act in the name of Extinction Rebellion. It's extraordinarily open. There are no leaders. It's really, a, a, as I said, a self-organising movement. In terms of what has come before and what we've learned from, obviously we've looked at the history of nonviolent direct action and that's been a huge inspiration. But one of the things that's different about this crisis in terms of nonviolent direct action is that there isn't a front line. So for example, you could look at gasfield-free Northern Rivers and what they did at Bentley where they had thousands of people blockading the site of a proposed CSG mine and they won, bought back the license. And that's a very distinct front line. That's where you go. So Extinction Rebellion's strategy is to say, come to the capital cities, come to the centre of commerce and business and disrupt business as usual. And it gets back to that idea of interrupting the flow of money. It's, it's when it hits the capital, capital money capital, not city capital, that politicians will really start to pay attention. Once you get to the point, for example, where you're shutting down the centre of London, that's shutting down one of the major finance centres of the world. And that's where you will see 
action on something that's so global and amorphous where there isn't a front line. Fantastic. I think it's a good time to open up for questions from everyone who's gathered. I think we have about 45 minutes left. I don't know if you have the mic, Paul. Matt and Declan, thank you. Um, so if you have a question, please raise your hand. And we want to start with a woman. Thank you. Hi, I've got a question. And that is around when you talk about shutting down the centre of commerce, what is anything being talked about with school strike or Extinction Rebellion around Scott Morrison's desire to prevent people from doing something as simple and in fact as capitalist as boycotting an organisation for, for you know, their role in our extinction crisis? Mm. Are you allowed to talk strategy? What, what we can do to resist that particular demonstration of control and coercion. Mm -hmm. So I feel like with us, it's kind of innate to our movement in terms of like partnerships and things like that and mm -hmm. how we go about representing other organizations and how we want our message to be spread because there's obviously some organizations that are amazing, they're very ethical and they're also very supportive of what we're doing. And I think those are great for us to kind of go along and say, okay, we want to work with you or we want you to spread our message and we'll give you something in return. But in terms of other organizations that have been, they're probably really popularized, which is great, and it does get our name around, but at the same time, they're not really going with what our main basis is. Like, they, they probably are using a lot of coal energy and that kind of stuff. So they're not really on the renewable side of things, or they're not really in support of climate action but rather getting themselves out there and saying that, oh yeah, we're with these young lefties who want to do things. And I think it's just for us, it's really about differentiating that. And mm. that's how we kind of attack the capitalism. I think within school strike, I, I think fortunately for us, not much of our campaigning has been centered around boycotting. But the thing is that that is such a integral part of the environmental movement. I think campaigns like Stop Adani, it is so vital to it. It is so core to it. And right now, honestly, we're still coming up with strategies and discussing exactly how we want to approach that issue because it is very real. And if things do change surrounding how we can boycott, that will totally shape and it will totally change how we have to go about activism. And yeah, I, I think that honestly, right now, we haven't totally outlined exactly how we will be approaching that. But I, I think that a lot of different environmental groups right now are having conversations surrounding it and sort of how we can oppose that because that is part of... It, it's, a, it's a basic freedom. It, it's important that in these forms of activism that we're able to disrupt the economy and we're able to create positive change through the system in which, which is causing these issues. Yeah. Mm. I think what... Scott Morrison is suggesting is thoroughly undemocratic. The idea that you can prevent boycotts, like are they gonna, they're going to force me to buy stuff I don't want to buy? I, I don't think there's a legislative mechanism that can really do that, which is not to say it's not a concern because obviously there are other ways of, of cracking down on organisations. But, I mean, in terms of our strategies, we're still targeting companies, absolutely. We were outside the BHP AGM last week demanding that they step back from being a member of the Minerals Council of Australia, which is the eighth most damaging for the climate mm. lobby group in the world. And they had a really great result inside inside the AGM. 27% of shareholders voted, or 28%, voted in support of, of that motion. So we're hopeful that as a long-term strategy, they will pull out of the Minerals Council. And as the biggest mining corporation in the world, that would be a huge success. But yeah, look, let's, let's do some GHT sit-ins together.
Yes, 100%. <laughs> I think it's also a bit trickier for us in terms of like economic disruption because we do have such a young demographic as well. So it's a bit hard to kind of get kids, I guess, into that idea of, mm. you know, boycotting this and boycotting that. Because I know when I was really little, advertisements are kind of everything. You know, they could put something pink on the TV and I'd buy it. It was, it's just an idea of finding how to really grapple with young children's minds and that idea yeah. of boycotting. And also, particularly as teenagers, we don't have much financial independence. Exactly. I, I can't tell my parents to switch banks because, like, I, I mean, I could try and yeah. I, I'm still trying. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think that it's interesting actually seeing how different groups approach that because by that same token, though, I know the Australian Youth Climate Coalition and School Strike also have had discussions surrounding really targeting businesses because they play such a pivotal role in this crisis. And it's it's difficult because particularly with School Strike, our, our tactics are having these enormous mobilizations. And at this point, it's around like once every six months or so. So when you're having these enormous things, you're we're normally targeting on a federal level because there is so much to cover. So I think part of school strike strategy going into the future is figuring out having these sort of smaller, more targeted actions and sort of how we can coordinate that along with these really enormous mobilizations. Thank you. More questions? I'm just noting that everybody on the stage is female and I don't know whether that's simply accidental or whether there is something in this crisis that particularly appeals to women. I, I think, okay, because this is something we've been trying to figure out since the school strike movement began, because from day one, it has been totally female dominated. And no one knows 100%, no one is 100% agreeing on it, but my personal take is that I think marginalized people's tend to be the ones who will sympathize and empathize with these issues and are more likely to take action. And I think due to patriarchy, females are in a system of oppression still. And I think because of that, they are more likely to be the ones taking action. And I think it's it's not just women. Like, you look within these movements and there's a lot of queer people, there's a lot of racially diverse people, there's a lot of disabled people, there's uh, all these different issues like that and I, th I think that just generally marginalized peoples are always the first ones to take action on any issue. Mm. I also think that I completely agree with the whole marginalized voices but I also think that there's this idea of like mother earth and it's always been like a very feminine thing almost I, in a sense like I think the idea of nurturing and like that showing you know that showing tenderly love to to nature it's it's such a romanticized idea and even when you look at like all these all this poetry from the romanticism era that kind of thing it's very female heavy in a sense and it's that very like elegant and that kind of idea and i think that's one of the reasons that females are so drawn to this in a sense and i also think that that's something that's changing because i don't think that romanticist idea is still there and i think it's definitely going to even change more in the future but i mean if if i'm just gonna guess I'm going to say that because it's such a big thing to say Mother Earth or like describing the oceans in a very feminine manner. So, yeah, that's all I can say. Yeah, I think Extinction Rebellion is probably closer to parity of genders, although thinking thinking through some meetings is often more, more women than men. And I really agree with you, Vasha, about the characterization of, of Mother Earth and a sense of a, a feminine energy around the environmental movement as such. I think 
I was thinking about what motivates people to engage in, in the climate movement. And I was looking at some of the, the things that people have said to me in XR and it's people have an existential fear or they talk about wanting a future for their grandchildren or their children or people my age who are struggling with the idea of whether or not they should have children given what we're facing. And I think what is at the, at the heart of every single one of these motivations is love. It's about love for humanity, love for the world beyond humanity. And I think women are socialized to be more connected with that feeling than men are. That is something we're all changing, right? Yeah, I mean, the, absolutely. All, all the men in here and all of us raising men, I mean, moving from the dominator patriarchal approach, right, to the caring and partnership approach absolutely. is part of this regenerative culture shift. Absolutely. Yeah. Something that worries me is the potential for nominally apolitical climate movements to be combined with far-right nationalism. How do you see the climate movement intersecting with nationalism for good or for bad? As in, like, nationalistic, like, Australia's great kind of nationalism? Yeah. Oh, what's okay. so far right? Like, hmm. okay. I, I think that the thing about, not that we're apolitical, it's more like nonpartisan because I think there is a distinction between that. We're just saying we won't ever support any party, really. We're just supporting this sort of policy. But I, I think something about the environmental movement is that it's not about saving yourself or saving your own country because it doesn't work if just your country or just one space take action it's all about a globalized approach and every step of the way it's it's that globalization and even with the paris agreement we all need to do our bit really <laughs> to keep this below a severe amount of warming and personally i just see that i can't see them intersecting that much just because when you're valuing your nation or your your place above all others i think that inherently just doesn't work with the notion of the climate movement and the values that are upheld just generally within it. Mm. Yeah, look, I think as the movement gathers steam and more support and it begins to be less seen as of the left and more of surviving, I think it is a genuine danger that, that the movement could be co-opted in a sort of eco-fascist direction. I also think there are ways that the movement can benefit from a sense of maybe healthy nationalism. If you look at the book that Ross Garno has recently re released about how Australia is really in a position to be an economic superpower based on renewable energy, that's a kind of almost positive nationalism that we could be tapping into in terms of might be something that might convince our political leaders to, to move in that direction and away from fossil fuels and into renewables. But I do, I do have a genuine fear that, as I said, as the demographic that is attracted to climate activism widens, that we, go, we have to come back to that not-at-any-cost mm. mentality and be extremely cautious of of any form of action that doesn't enfranchise marginalised communities. I think I've actually seen the climate movement step away from the nationalism. I feel like we're saying our country's not good enough, in a sense. Yeah. <laughs> so every single time, because our politicians are the one like, Australia's doing so good, you know, we're, we're really up there, we're doing so much. And then it's like, no, we're third largest exporters of coal, but that's fine, you know? And then we're telling our politicians that, no, we're not doing enough, that Australia has so much more potential. And I know it's the same in the US, it's, in, it's the same in India, it's the same in Sri Lanka, it's the same in all those countries. They're saying that 
okay, no, our politicians are not doing enough. Our country is not doing enough. We're not anywhere near the standards that we need to be. So I think the only people who are really instigating any sort of nationalism are our politicians. And I think right now with most of this movement, we're kind of against our politicians in a sense. So I don't really see them clashing too much. Uh, Ellie, I'm very sympathetic to your cause and I'm totally supportive of what you're doing. I just fear that your strategy might be sort of a bit counterproductive Mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, if you think about the current government's in for another two and a half years, we're talking about action needed to be taken straight away. So short of Jean and Varsha's generation coming through and becoming the ruling class, Mm. which is going to be a while off, you sort of think, well, how can we get things changing more quickly? And your strategy of disrupting business, Mm -hmm. disrupting people's commute to work and so on, I think runs the danger of just pissing people off. And if you look at the strategy that a lot of a lot of people are saying that the way of the way that things will change will not come through politicians, it'll come through business. Mm-hmm. And it's going to come through business because it's going to affect their bottom line. And once business realizes that their bottom line is going to be impacted very negatively if they don't address climate change, they do change. And if you think that business is going to drive be the driver, if you look at the US it seems that business is driving action rather than governments. It looks like, at least in the short term in Australia, the same is going to happen here. So if you look at getting business offside, I fear that your strategy might backfire. And if you look at what a lot of the superannuation funds are doing, they're talking to businesses and outlining to them that they think they would be better off if they addressed these issues. And Excuse me, do you have a question? Yeah. My my question is, have you guys thought about getting together with business rather than pissing them off by... You know, boycotting them because that's what a lot of the super funds are doing and they've got a lot of money behind them in terms of voting out yep. you know, the boards Agreed. and so on. So Thanks. Yeah, yep. I, I hear what you're saying. I acknowledge what you're saying. I don't think that's the role of Extinction Rebellion. It's a multifaceted movement. There are amazing organisations that are doing that work like the Australian Centre for Corporate Responsibility, Market Forces, 350. They're all doing that sort of work and it's extraordinarily important. I think as I said earlier, what I see the role for Extinction Rebellion as being is pushing out and creating more space behind for those more mainstream types of of action. Look, it's something we hear every day. You're just pissing people off. You're turning people away from the movement. And what I would say is, first of all, you you would never have heard of Extinction Rebellion if we weren't in the streets pissing people off and getting arrested. And the, the other thing that I wanted to say is that there was a really interesting bit of polling done by Essential Poll two weeks ago. It was two weeks after Spring Rebellion. They did a poll of over 1,000 people. 41% of those people knew of Extinction Rebellion. And of that 41%, supported what we're doing, including 27% of coalition voters. So I accept what you're saying, that it pisses people off, but it also inspires people. I think seeing people in their 70s being dragged off streets by cops in black really puts us in the moral high ground. And yeah, there will always be people like Kerri-Anne Kennelly who will say that we should be used as speed bumps, and that's fine. That's fine. It's putting us in the headlines. It's offering us the opportunity to say, this is where we stand. You know, we're willing to make these sacrifices. And it puts the question to the public, what are you willing to do? Great. Thanks all so much. And this actually leads off from your question of putting it to the public and what are you willing to do? And a really kind of lovely 
both like frustration and excitement that I've heard from all three of you tonight is kind of around this idea of the hero story that there's, you know, there's one inspirational individual who's kind of behind this or just a couple. And with both of your movements, there's a real emphasis on kind of spreading that around. And and I think, you know, once people get a taste of, okay, I've actually, this is my agency, I can actually do a thing, then, you know, that's a pretty amazing transformation. What I'd love to hear from all three of you is how do you get someone from that, say, like, a non-activist identified person like myself most of the time how do you get one of us to actually get in and get that taste of really having of really feeling your agency and your ability to organize and to do something when we do have that story of this is just individual remarkable people the rest of us we just we're just listeners we're not gonna join the call to action i think it's a combination of things i think firstly when you have things like the strikes, because the first one was more like kids who really care about climate change, and then from there it's become more and more mainstream to the point where on September 20 we had 80,000 people in the domain. And if you're, I, I remember my little sister was saying how she'd leave early, and I'm like, oh, you know, just stick around for the march. And she's like, oh no, don't worry, I already did the first march. Because that's how many people were all flooding in. And these aren't people who are already activists. Most of the time, for so many of the people, it was their first ever protest or their first ever march. And I think having these enormous mobilizations, having people come along firstly, I I think that helps. Because just sort of knowing like, okay, this is what this world is. This is what I could potentially get involved in. And then I I think the organisations themselves have a bit of a duty for running sort of educational sessions and school strike during our summer holidays over Christmas after after the November 30 strike. We actually held a sort of two-day training camp type thing with the Australian Youth Climate Coalition. And we had a wonderful activist called Amanda Tattersall. She's a co-founder of Get Up, co-founder of Sydney Alliance. A whole, if you Google her, you'll see a giant list of things she's a part of. And she's an amazing organiser. And from there sort of held this training session on different organisational structures. And we had school strikers facilitating at different tables. And kids would come up with ideas that we could really actually use. And then they'd start up little community groups. And from there, we now have a monthly cleanup crew. They'll go to parks or beaches and things like that. And that's just sort of a fun way for everyone to meet each other. And then we've had a bunch of other actions actually stem from that. So I I think that really does help. And on top of that, we had things like after March 15th, we had the climate election town hall. And that was in collaboration with, again, the Australian Youth Climate Coalition, along with Stop Adani. And It was open for adults and kids and everyone came in. We had a bunch of really awesome, inspiring speakers. And then we separated off into, I think it was under 30s and or maybe under 28 and then 28 plus. And then from there divided into areas and started different community action groups. So I think it is our job to help facilitate that and find ways that people can really easily get involved. And otherwise, people, it it always becomes a thing that is too daunting and is really difficult. But I think on top of that, when we do have these enormous mobilizations or these really inspiring things, then people sort of feel that drive and then they'll Google us and see how they can sign up to our newsletter or sort of somehow get involved. So I think that also does help a lot. Mm. (laughs) I think for me, a big thing when I came into this kind of climate activism field is the idea of being an activist. I think we're starting to break that 
Mm. terminology almost because what is an activist i think Mm. i'm just doing my duty as a human you know this is what i should be doing this is what i think most people should be doing it feels like too much of an official label yeah yeah, exactly (laughs) like i mean i'm just existing and then i'm thinking about my future and i'm thinking about the future of my family and my friends isn't that what we're all supposed to do at the end of the day so when i first joined this movement i remember it was like a six hour day and it was with the aycc and i was like oh my god this is way too long what am i going to do in this time but i realized that this movement isn't about learning about all this like sciencey and like strategic stuff it's about socializing it's about meeting people who are like-minded it's about understanding why we're fighting for this issue in a collective manner and why we can't just do it by ourselves but it's also about understanding the agency that we do possess so I think that's what this entire movement means and that's that's how it kind of came about and that's how it's progressing now so my journey sort of into the beast with Extinction Rebellion was, you know, I joined the Facebook page, didn't really know much about it. And then I, I saw a call, someone saying, hey, does anyone want to join the media and messaging working group? And I was like, yeah, I work in media and messaging. I've been doing that for most of my career. I can do that. So I think what's great about XR is whatever your interest is, be it your professional interest or your hobby, there's a place for you. If you want to join a choir, if you want to join the arts group, if you want to be in regen, if you want to be in talks and training, there's so many different options. You can be in IT, you can be in finance. I know, sexy, huh? But there's so many different ways in. And yeah, as I said, it can be about your career. It can be about your hobby. It can just be about something you want to learn more about and finding that way where it's something that you really want to be doing. We don't want people there to be, you know, grudgingly. We want you to be there because you're lit up by it and you're doing something that you find really inspiring and you're learning something new or developing your skills. Yeah. As a quick follow-up, just practical follow-up to that, you mentioned going to websites, signing up for the email list, joining the Facebook pages. What are some other practical steps people can take just to get involved if they're not already? All of those things. Join the dis- There's a discussion group. There's a Sydney discussion group. There's a New South Wales discussion group. They're both excellent. As I said, there's an intro talk every Thursday at the Gaelic Club at 6.30. Come along to that. That's a really, really great way to get a sense of what everyone's like, which is really friendly. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's mostly online for us, actually. As I was saying, all of our organising is online. It is so rare for us to do anything in person. There's there's people within the movement who organise for the Sydney team that I haven't ever met in person so honestly it's just sort of right now we're still figuring out exactly how adults can support often when it comes to strike days we always need marshals we always need volunteers in that sense but yeah I honestly just online if you we have a space where it's just sort of sign up you can say if you're an adult supporter and what skills you have and how you can help and from there we'll put you forward into your local group or direct you to the people who you could work with and who could really help out yeah, I think sometimes for us it's actually a DM on Instagram. It's like, oh, I live in this area and I want to be a part of it. And then we're kind of moving people around and seeing like our teams and different electorates and stuff like that. So it's quite mm. easy in that sense. And are there next actions you want people to know about that they might want to be involved mm. in or, or support? Okay, so this I think is being announced tomorrow. Yeah, <laughs> so a little preview. <laughs> yeah, you guys, you guys first to know. Okay, so on November 29th, That's the next sort of big global action with the strike. However, since it was so close to September 20, we decided as as the Australian movement not to make that our next major strike, rather another form of action. And we had a plan and then decided to scrap it yesterday. In, In light of the recent bushfires, we just felt that we wanted to do something a bit bigger. So we're holding a bunch of different, we call it, we're calling them teach-ins. So... We will be going to different MPs' offices 
will bring whiteboards, textbooks, textbooks, the whole shebang. And we will be in probably a rather condescending manner, <laughs> sort of pointing the finger saying, this is a crisis, do your job. And we want that really interesting visual of having all these young people there. And I think right now we've got a call after this where we'll yeah. also be discussing the role of adults within that. Mm. But uh, everyone's welcome to come along. And yeah, it, it seems like it'd be a really great action that would be happening nationally. Yeah, so we're looking like most... We, we will be announcing details soon, but it's looking like most likely going to be Scott Morrison's office. Yeah, maybe... Um, maybe Gladys's yeah. as well. Possib yeah, we, we're just sort of looking around at the moment because we have... A lot of people interested, of course, to sort of how far we want to reach, but definitely, definitely targeting ScoMo because he's been extra suckish lately. Um. Yeah, sure has. <laughs> I think um, yeah. also a big thing with this is that we're trying to get a bit more like widespread, I guess, and not just school students. So anybody's welcome. We just really want to reiterate that because mm. although we are School Strike for Climate, we're organized by students, but we do want to make sure that we're inclusive. Yeah, so just like sign up to our website, you'll get details soon. <laughs> We're holding a bushfire vigil on Friday afternoon at 5.30 outside Town Hall. That will be a very obviously sombre action. And then on Saturday, we're having a picnic at Redfern Park. If you jump on the Facebook page, all the details will be there. And that's just a really nice social activity, just a chance to come along and meet some people and see if you vibe with our vibe. Great. So I think um, we're going to stop the panel at, and, and create some space for people to have one-on-one -on -one conversations afterward and maybe have a little bite to eat. So thank you, panelists. You're fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. We're only a couple of minutes away from finishing the formalities, but before that, I'd just like to introduce Clive Hillier, Nancy Hillier's son. Thanks, Paul. First, I'd like to thank everyone for coming along this evening. I mean, it's, this is the, the fourth evening, and they keep on getting better and better. I think um, we have a big vote of thanks to Paul as the driving force to getting this all happening and making it happening, so I'd like to thank Paul personally for his help. And I'd like to thank our wonderful... In, inspirational is not a word of choice, apparently, but I think they're very inspirational. They're absolute apathy killers, and I hope Scamo's scared, because he should be. Couldn't see it happen to a nicer guy, but anyway, that's another story. I was talking to Paul earlier about activism, and like when Mum got into this 40-odd years ago, she started off in a fairly small way, but she found out she's hitting barriers all over the place. And it's mainly with the police who didn't want to know about it, they couldn't see what was in it for them. And unless you push the right buttons with the politicians, which comes down to money and votes, they're not going to give you any attention. And these guys are right on the money with that. And the money's the key word. You've got to hurt them where it hurts. They've got to be worried about their seat at the next election. They've got to worry about the people thinking that they're basically good people and they sh should be voted for. So then they have to have... They'll start to follow a cause if there's something they think it's in it for them. They're pretty egocentric. I'm a bit cynical these days about politicians, but anyway, I don't th think most people are. One of the things I, I believe, and I think Mum would have as well, is activism starts at home. She started in a small way in a small suburb of Botany over issues of pollution in the area, the way the area has been mistreated, the way it was let run down, how nobody cared about it, how the big industries walked all over the place. And she started out as an independent activist. Her original group that she formed with the Dolaps was the Botany Independent Action Group. And the word independent was important to them because they didn't want to think they were, the people to think they were in anyone's pocket with the politicians. They didn't choose sides, but they certainly chose allies. 
the people who are prepared to support them, you foster them, you don't push them away. But you, by the same token, you don't let them buy you, and that's, that's critical. Something that concerns me at the moment is we need to look at the big picture. That's really important. But I think we still need to look in our own backyards where we have issues, where we're being walked all over by governments and big industries who really only look at the dollars. And if we don't jump up and make a noise about it, it'll continue to happen. And it's from these little seeds that are being planted in the communities where we are opposing things. And what I'm alluding to here is the, the cruise ships coming into Botany Bay, which I feel very strongly, I'm very strongly against. I mean, it's a short sighted planning or lack thereof. I mean, we've got these massive machines that contribute more sulphur dioxide than any other machine on the planet. Coming into Botany Bay, which is very little of its left as it was when Captain Cook came here and the original inhabitants owned the land. You look around the bay from Kernel, where Caltex was, and what's left of it still is, coming round through Brighton on the other side of the bay, we get to the airport with the runways into the bay. The dredging, I remember the dredging that went on for that, the disruption, the change of the ecosystem when that all happened. This is sort of things that Mum was against. Ran to the port development, which destroyed that side of the bay as we knew it. It was dredged, the environmental system was destroyed. It not, not only affected this side of the bay, it affected the other side of the bay, around where the mangroves and things were from the dredging. There was a, a massive disruption. And now they want to go to that little jewel that's still left on this side of the bay, where we have La Perouse, we have Bear Island, we have you know, Yarra Bay, and they want to anchor these massive cruise ships there. Come on. I mean, really. It's, 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 it's a disgrace. And it's so short-sighted. I mean, we've all seen industries like this come and go. I mean, Cruises are a fad. Another 10 years' time, people have done that, and they may not be interested in doing it anymore. What are they going to use the port for then? What are they going to bring into the port? This is what they're not telling us about. And this is the stuff we've got to be on top of in our own little area, our own patch, to support the environment ongoing. And if everyone looks after their own patch, it's like a brick wall. All those little bricks add up, and you end up with a much better result. And hopefully the politicians will sit up and take notice. It's six years since Mum passed away this year. As Paul said earlier, and he sort of stole my thunder a little bit, she was on her deathbed, still trying to bargain for the little guy. Her last words were she didn't want to go because she had too much to do. And it's such a wonderful thing to see these young people coming through. And I'd like to thank you for your attendance tonight. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Climactic, the flagship podcast of the Climactic Collective, a podcast network dedicated to lifting the voices of the climate community. You can find out more about the people behind Climactic and all the shows we produce at climactic.fm. We are a social enterprise podcast network, and we greatly appreciate your support. You can find a link to our Pausable where you can support us directly in the show notes of this episode or from our website. Thank you for listening, and from the whole Climactic Collective, keep up the great work and take care of each other in these climactic times. The Climactic Collective This show is produced by Hear Media a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H-E-R-E media.studio. Media.